This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 45. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear please rate and review the Planet Microcap podcast on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Meredith Brill, who goes by the name at LockStockBarrel, no E, on Twitter and the Microcap Club. We were introduced through a mutual friend, and as you will hear, we discuss how she has been able to leverage her professional skills to help her develop an investing thesis on a potential investment and to assess her current portfolio. The goal for this episode is to understand that your professional skills can be quite useful when you're developing your microcap investing strategy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 45 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Meredith Brill. But first, a word from our sponsor. A comprehensive streaming of market data, research, and portfolio management application for you. QuoteStream is a real-time streaming quotes and research system designed for the day trader, retail investor, institutional investor, both new and old. QuoteStream offers low-latency, tick-by-tick data, advanced charting, comprehensive technical analysis, news, and research. With no software to install and no servers to maintain, QuoteStream is the ideal solution for you. Go to stocknewsnow.com and start your free 7-day trial. Click the quote stream banner in the header or real-time quotes in the nav bar to get started building and managing your investments. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I have Meredith Brill on the program. Meredith is a Microcap Club member and writes and tweets using the handle at LockStockBarrel, no E. Meredith, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Bobby. I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to have you on. Thank you for joining me. So uh, as we do with uh, each interview, uh, I'd like to get started with, you know, what is your background and how did you get your start investing in microcap stocks? Yeah, so I I have a a bit of an unusual background, Bobby. So I originally studied chemical engineering at the University of Toronto. And then I went on to study law at Osgoode Hall. And I practiced full time at an intellectual property law firm in Toronto for many years uh, with a focus on patents. And then I decided to step out of law completely to stay home full time with my three young daughters. And I was always very interested in, in investing and, but, and stock picking, but I really never had any time to de- dedicate to it. So when I was home, I, I took the opportunity to do a lot of reading. And I started out by picking individual stocks and really learning by trial and error. And, and I had some great successes and some ep- epic failures. <laughs> and um, I didn't intend to... S- focus on microcaps at the outset, but I owned a stock um, pretty early on uh, called Paladin Labs, um, which had a fairly unique business model at the time of in in licensing pharmaceuticals into the Canadian market. 
And in my general reading, um, I came across a news release in 2014 for a company which had a similar business model, but like a really tiny market cap of only about $50 million. And the news release at the time was describing some amazing growth and it prompted me to take a closer look. And I, you know, I still, there wasn't a lot of information available on it at the time and I still had a lot of questions about it. But I was like actually amazed that I was able to pick up the phone, call the CEO, have a great discussion with him. And after the phone call, I started a position in the stock and that really was my first introduction to microcaps. We're- were any of the books that you initially read to get started in investing, did they mention microcaps or microcap investing at all? No, they didn't at all. And and initially when I um, saw that it only had a $50 million market cap, it was quite, it was quite scared because, you know, <laughs> you know, tiny little company that, um, you know, and, and it just has a, you know, penny stocks. And so it has a sort of a bad rap at the outset, but after speaking to the the CEO and um, you know doing my research on it, I was really convinced that this could be something that could be a really great company and, and a lot bigger in the future. So, so I I, I get when you you made the the shift, but you know why did you decide to shift most of your focus then into microcaps? I'm guessing you did very well on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still own it, but uh, you know I'm hoping it will do better in the future. I'm up on it. But. Okay. Um, so I realized pretty early on that, uh, you know, since microcaps are relatively illiquid, um, most don't have analyst coverage and they're generally too small for institutions to buy. There tend to be some pretty wild market inefficiencies in the space. And so if you're willing to do the work and try to identify those really high quality businesses, I think you can really do well. And so I try to find companies that can grow their earnings per share. And also, if the stock is relatively unknown, you can sometimes buy the stock at a relatively low valuation. And then you can have the extra torque of multiple expansion as the stocks become more discovered by the investing community. So um, in conducting my due diligence on on that first microcap that I bought, I came across um, the Microcap Club, which is a closed online community which identifies and shares research on North American microcaps. So um, in order to become a member, you had to submit a thesis on a microcap stock and obtain more than two thirds of the votes to be voted in. So I worked really hard on a write up on another uh, smaller stock that I owned um, and I submitted it under the um, handle lock stock barrel. So no one knew that I was a man or a woman. And I was absolutely thrilled to be to learn that I was voted in. And when I first joined the club, I was asked to prepare a short biography. And um, I think the members were were really shocked to learn <laughs> that I was a woman. Um, and at the same time, you know, they mentioned, you know, th- there was talk of ceiling, glass ceilings breaking. And at the time, I was really surprised to learn that I was also the first woman out of 150 members. And, you know, at the same time, we're actually breaking a glass ceiling here as you're the first woman who I've interviewed for the podcast. And, you know, with that, I, 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 I'm just curious, you know, because I wanted to ask you, why do you think there aren't more women who do invest in microcap stocks, you know, and with, and with that, what is your message to those who may be interested? Yeah, I, I honestly think it's a very excellent question, Bobby, but I, I really, unfortunately, I don't even really have any specific insight as to why there aren't any more women in the microcap space. Um, 
but I, I really do have to say that um, the microcap members, um, microcap club members were so welcoming to me when I first joined. And many of them even reached out to me um, with private messages um, at the beginning to introduce themselves and, and establish a friendship. And it's been so invaluable to me to uh, mature and learn as an investor because when I started out, I was completely alone, doing all this research alone. I had no one to discuss anything with. I was completely in a vacuum. And um, and I had no business background. So I just did, I had done science and um, law. So to have someone bring other perspectives was so valuable to me. And in October 2015, um, myself and six members of the Microcap Club first met in Toronto and we had a meeting with uh, that original Microcap company that I had bought. And then we drove down to Detroit to attend the annual Microcap Club conference. And um, this gave my husband an opportunity to tell people completely out of context how his wife went on a road trip with a bunch of young guys she'd met on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) So um, anyway, the the conference provided me with a fantastic opportunity to network with all of the people that I previously worked with on the Microcap Club, but had not yet met in person. And I also got the chance to meet with the management of some of the companies that I was invested in. So rather than having a phone call with somebody, I was actually able to sit face to face and ask them questions and see what the responses were. So it was just a really overall great experience for me and a lot of fun. But I would highly encourage any woman who's interested in microcaps to become actively involved in the community. And that's the best way to really ensconce yourself in it. Because, I mean, there, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of women CEOs in the microcap space now. You know, there's, more, there's a lot more taking on leadership roles of these companies. You know, it's just, it, it always, you know, you go to some of these events and you don't see as many uh, women microcap investors. And you're just like, you know, why, why is this? You know, I, I don't know if you've, from your experiences at the events yourself, or I, I don't know, you know, what, what it is. But, you know, we'd, we'd love to see you know, be even more inclusive if it at all is perceived to be exclusive. In any yeah, way. I, 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 like I said, I've only have had amazing experiences and I've been completely, um, in, you know, included in all of the friendships. And so I, I haven't been treated any differently at all. I think the key, I think the key point is to, is to the message to all women out there is that it's not a boys club. At all. No, yeah. I mean, the, the, the people, honestly, and it's a, it's a fairly small community, really, of the people that look at, you know, especially Canadian microcaps and, 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 and U.S. microcaps. But, you know, the, the hub really is, is, is places like the Microcap Club. And, um, and so it's a fairly small community. We all know each other and, and they've all been excellent. So, you know, I really encourage people to do it because it's, it's really a space that you can really excel at if you, if you work really hard, I think. I, I 100% agree. So back to microcaps themselves, Meredith, you know, what, what types of microcaps are you drawn to and how do you generate ideas? Yeah, so so because of my science and, and patent law background, I, I tend to be drawn to growth companies in technology, healthcare, and sometimes the consumer sectors. And so I'm looking for profitable companies that are scalable, and that's the key word, scalable. And and not just scalable, but, but have excellent reinvestment opportunities at high rates of return. And so examples of these type of scalable businesses I'm looking for are something I call platform companies that have distribution networks that can be leveraged to introduce new products to existing customers with minimal additional marketing costs. 
So I really am very interested in specialty pharmaceutical companies that can, you know, leverage an existing sales force by introducing new drugs in the medical reps bag. And I seem to be drawn to um, roll up or consolidation of companies um, in a fragmented industry where you can realize synergies and, and create scale that way. So the key is, is growth, but, but profitable growth. And so for Igena Generation, um, I like to look at ideas of, of potential investments from my, my closer group of friends because they've already vetted the stock and deemed it worthy of a closer look. I definitely look at ideas that are written up on websites like the Microcap Club and the Value Investors Club, for example. <clears throat> and I really love to attend Microcap conferences where, you know, you get to, a chance to learn about different companies, but more importantly, I think participate in one-on-one -on -one meetings with management. Like there's been a few times where I've, you know, just really love the story and, you know, I read all the documents and then I sit face to face with the CEO and I just don't like him. <laughs> or her. Um, and so I, I take a pass and I, I think there's a lot of value in that, you know, that one-on-one, -on -one, it's different than a phone call, but actually seeing them in person, I think really makes a big difference and is, is a reason why you really want to attend those conferences. And also the, the other interesting thing about attending the conferences is the ability to gauge the sentiment of the stock um, from the other investors there. That's my, that's actually, that's my favorite part too. I love like you get the chance to meet the CEO and then you're at the cocktail party and you're with all your buddies that you just met and you're like, what did you think of that guy? Like, <laughs> that was, he was interesting or she, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was a good one. But real quick to follow up when it comes to your, um, you know, what, what you're drawn to and you said something, how you're, you're drawn to growth companies. And I've asked this a couple times on the podcast, but in your opinion, what, what do you see as the difference between a looking at growth versus value type play? What, what, what's your comment on that? Yeah, so I think what, what I mean by growth is just that there's just lots of opportunity for uh, the company to continue to scale. So in other words, uh, versus, you know, if you have a, a good little business, but um, you can't expand it, right? So it, it's, it throws off cash, but, um, you know, you you really have no additional um, way to grow the company. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm invested in, in a stock where um, they had this initial uh, business that was just a, a, like a cash cow and it just spun off um, cash, but they didn't, they, they didn't, they couldn't reinvest in that single business. So they, they took a new vertical and they invested capital in that new vertical and the new vertical took off. And then, in addition to, uh, and then that one spent, started spending cash and then they started to do a, a third vertical. So, so I'm always looking for something that, you know, just can reinvent themselves and, and always add new products and services and, and continue to scale. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just a one product type business. Like right. There's, there's multiple. Right. Okay, cool. Right. So what, what tools do you use uh, to help you conduct your qualitative due diligence? Yeah. So before, like I said, before I joined the Microcap Club, um, I I originally took to social media, and I think it's really interesting, and in particular Twitter, to what I call data mine in an effort to learn some valuable information about a stock or a sector, and I was absolutely fascinated to learn that there's an entire online community in the, in this realm also that sort of refers to themselves as FinTwit, and they use a special hashtag which is a a dollar sign followed by the ticker of the stock to provide running commentary on a specific stock. So for example, sometimes the tweet, you know, it's 140 characters, but contains just a thought. 
but sometimes it can contain a link to a useful article that I haven't seen before on the on the stock I'm researching or a blog post where the person provides an opinion on the stock. So I, I find this very useful. And when I first joined Twitter um, many years ago, I had to pick a handle. And my eldest daughter suggested I pick the handle at Stalker Mom. <laughs> um, but to my dismay, it was already taken by a woman who ironically didn't even tweet about stocks. <laughs> um, but I do find it useful also just, you know, if I have a new idea um, of a small microcap, to perform searches in the search box um, to gauge the level of activity on the microcap name. And sometimes um, when I'm researching a new company, I'm pretty excited to see little to no activity on the stock. No one's talking about it. And this t implies to me, again, that it could be relatively undiscovered in trading at a good low valuation. Um, and, and then it might have more upside as people learn about the name. That's pretty interesting. I got to say that you're, that you're one of the first, if not the first on the podcast to really utilize social media in this way. And, you know, like for instance, with what we do at Stock News now, when we put out the news, we always use the, the cash tag. We, yes. Right. Did we say cash? Yeah. Cat. I we call hashtag. hashtag yeah. I call. I call. We call it the cash tag. <laughs> the cash tag. That's cool. And, <laughs> and, apt, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, it works, <laughs> I guess. And um. And and that's that's pretty interesting. And I like I I I like the idea that you actually get more excited where you see that there's not that much on it. Right. You know. Yes. And and this is all after you've done your quantitative due diligence. I'm I'm guessing. Am I correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. And deemed it worthy of of going on to the qualitative due diligence because otherwise if you know if the numbers don't bear out then there's no point in me wasting my time in the qualitative mm -hmm. realm because the qualitative realm is is sort of the harder thing to do and and the more time consuming thing for sure what are some of your just you know for framework what, what are some of your quant measures that you look for for instance you don't have to name them all but maybe a couple examples yeah so i look i do look at um return on invested capital and i think this is a very key uh, point. And so, you know, it's a measure of the profitability of the business for every dollar that you put in. So what you really want to see a high return on return on equity or return on invested capital. And in particular, you want to do you want to see those metrics high, you know, with little to no leverage. And then if they do throw on a little bit of leverage, you you even get more fantastic returns. So that's the first thing I look at. And, th and that's kind of a clue to whether there's uh, a moat or a competitive advantage. And, you know, there's lots of discussion on, on competitive advantage and, and in the technology and healthcare and consumer spaces, um, you know, you, you want to have a differentiated or unique product. So, and it, it, it has to be something where competition can't just flood in and, and, and ruin your market share. So, so, you know, that's what I, that's what I look for. And, and, you know, I look for, price to earnings and, you know, those kinds of price to book, you know, you want, you, you sort of don't look at only one metric, you, you look at everything and then see if how it aligns and holistically. I was going to say, it seems like you're, you're, while, you know, sales is important, you're also looking for if they have like a, a, a nice IP patent portfolio as well, That's right. you know, That's like right. to really protect yeah. it. And that actually leads into my next question. Um, you know, can you, can you actually give me an example of, of how you use your professional skills to help you make an investing decision? Yeah. So, um, you know, very early on when I, um, joined the microcap club, I, um, I invested in a company that, that, uh, people really liked and, um, it so happened to be hit 
with a patent infringement lawsuit by a large multinational company. And, and understandably, at the outset, most of the shareholders panicked and sold down the stock, sort of believing that it was likely ruinous to the company. Um, I think what happened was that, you know, most shareholders, you know, didn't know how to deal with it. They um, viewed it as a binary event and ended up throwing it in the too hard pile as they were basically unable to quantify the risks and the possible outcomes. So I immediately saw this as an opportunity to use my specific science and patent law skills to assess the merits of the lawsuit and try to assign probabilities to the possible outcomes. And so after mapping out all of the possible scenarios, I knew that I would be able to make an inf a more informed decision whether to sell the stock and move on or increase my position at the depressed, the highly depressed share price. So I'd like, like to uh, explain the story kind of generically without getting too bogged down in the details um, to show that there is a systematic way that to approach the problem and try to create valuable insight, which can give you a real informational edge over the rest of the market. So really to be uh, successful in a patent infringement lawsuit, you need the claims of the patent to be both valid and infringed. And so whenever you're presented with a patent infringement lawsuit, there are three main inquiries. Number one, does the defendant infringe the claims of the patent? Number two, is the patent valid? And the third inquiry is, if the patent's likely to be held valid and infringed, is there a design around where the defendant could make some changes to the product so that it no longer infringes the claims. How do you go about conducting that type of due diligence? Right. So, so as I mentioned, there's there's three main investigations you need to do. So the first one you need to do is is to formulate an opinion on infringement, and and to do this, you just need, like I was mentioning before, you need to fully understand the scope of the invention that's claimed. And, and that comes from studying the claims, which is the numbered paragraphs at the end of the patent. And you need to obtain a sample of the defendant's product and analyze it. And, and then you um, can prepare a claim chart, which, which is literally a side-by-side -side comparison of, on the one hand, the claims of the patent and what's being in, in, um, invented. And on the other side, the um, corresponding features of the defendant's product. And then you just go literally line by line and see whether they match up or see whether they don't. And so in the case of a mechanical device, it's, it's fairly straightforward. You just look at the device, you see the elements, you see how it works, and you can make an assessment. In our case, though, um, some of the claim elements refer to chemical compositions of materials, which we couldn't readily discern just by looking at the product. So we'd hit a roadblock. We really wanted to know the answer, though. We, we really wanted to see if we could find out the answer. So we got the idea to send a sample of the product to an independent laboratory to conduct analytical tests to try to identify the chemical compositions of the materials. And after multiple tries and three different laboratories, <laughs> we finally hit an ingenious lab who gave us the answers we were searching for. And we took that new information that we generated from the test results and used it to form our own opinion on infringement. Um, the next thing you need to look at is, is uh, to form an opinion on validity. And it's important to know that there's, as, as I mentioned before, there's many different publicly available resources on the net that anyone can access. And so the USPTO has a public pair portal where anyone can look up the file history of the patent. And the, the file history of the patent 
is the first place you start um, to go to read the arguments that the patentee made with the patent office during the prosecution stage when you were trying to obtain the patent. And then you, you, you have to conduct an invalidity search um, to try to locate printed publications that could be used to invalidate the patent. And essentially you're looking for evidence that the invention had already been described to the public and therefore the patent should never have been granted in the first place. And part of that investigation usually involves looking at all of the related patents in the family that were filed in other jurisdictions. Um, in our case, we were absolutely thrilled to learn that there was a sister European patent which had identical claims to the US patent in question. And it was the midst of its own European patent opposition where two opponents were independently trying to attack the validity of the patent. The European patent office has a website where you can download the entire file history of the opposition and sort of watch it unfold in real time as, as documents get filed. The, the file history is over 3,000 pages um, that I read. So um, between the, um, my own invalidity search and the arguments that were made in the European op patent opposition, I was able to uh, form my own opinion on the validity of the patent. And so, you know, I also did some, some basic uh, research on, you know, some potential design arounds that, the, that my company could take to make some changes to the product so that they wouldn't fall within the scope of the claims. So after doing all of this due diligence, I formed opinions on infringement, validity, and design arounds. Um, I assigned my probabilities to the outcomes, and I was able to step in and buy the stock with confidence at those depressed prices. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it, it was definitely was. But, you know, I saw an opportunity, so I, I, I ran with it. <laughs> oh, How long did it take you to do all that? Just I'm just curious. Well, I was, uh, it was over months and months, months and, and months. Um, uh, you know, the as I as I mentioned, those uh, we'd sent it to, to multiple labs, and they they couldn't do it, and then we finally found one that was absolutely amazing. So, we were quite lucky. Cool. So, and, and there was there a way for you to uh, follow the status of the case? Yeah. So, um, also, it's it's important for your audience to know that there's a um, a website in the U.S. called Pacer. And it's an online database that the, the public can access to track court proceedings. And so I was able to review all of the relevant pleadings, um, including the statement of claim where the plaintiff made their allegations and the statement of defense where the defendant, you know, provided details on their defense. And this is all helpful in, in providing background and to all of my other research. And in following the case on PACER, this is how I initially became aware that the companies had actually entered in to settlement negotiations, because this is not something they're going to press release. So this is something that you you should be you know continually following if you're if you're involved in the stock. Um, and and then very recently the case was settled out of court, and while the details remain confidential, um, the CEO is on record stating that they do not expect the settlement to have a material impact on the business. So it worked out it worked out <laughs> well for us. Um, but the key takeaway I think from this from the case study is that. Um, if one of your stocks is hit with a patent infringement lawsuit, um, there are publicly available resources you can use to form an opinion on the merits of the suit. So in my case, I was able, I was lucky, I was able to use my science and law background so I could do it myself. But, you know, it's, it's important to appreciate that you could, you know, you, you could get together a, a group of people and hire a patent lawyer to give you the exact same advice. Um, you know, and if, if 
you know, with the only barrier being the cost. So, if, you know, if you can defray the cost amongst a group of people, it might be something that's very worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So I also want to know and is, you know, because what we just described was, you know, you, uh, you had a, a, you own a, a stock that already it was in your portfolio. You happened to see the, the patent infringement lawsuit and you were ab- using your professional skills. You were able to um, do your own due diligence based on publicly available information to make an, a, a, the next decision. So uh, taking a step back even, you know, how, how can you describe how you would use these same professional skills in the discovery process and why that's ad- advantageous? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned before, I think I, I'm naturally drawn to technology-heavy stocks that have a, a science component to it. And I always like to to delve really deep, pretty deeply into the science of, of the product or, or service and, you know, to, to really understand, you know, how it makes the product different and and unique and differentiated and, um, you know, how I think that positions that company relative to the other competitors in the space. And, and I think, as I mentioned before, I, I typically do perform, you know, patent searches and, and I look at the quality of the patents because, again, you know, you can have companies that, you know, wave around patents and sort of using to market their shares. But if it's not, you know, if it's something that would never be able to be commercially ramped up, it's it's kind of useless thing. Mm-hmm. So you, you you kind of have to use your, um, you know, your um, judgment to see whether it's um, something that could be actually useful in the marketplace. I was going to say, it's like, it's like almost that next step. It's, after like, uh, let's say for instance, you know, I love, I love surfing. Like I'm not, you know, I, I'll go and look up a brand to see if they, ha- if they're publicly traded, you know, for it, with what you've described, it's kind of that next level of like, all right. right, this is what I I do or have done professionally. You know, let's see if I can use this to my advantage to, you know, maybe gain an edge or find something that is of value that maybe just got completely overlooked. You right. Know? So right. I would say that would be your, you know, I, you, I think you're supportive of that notion. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before I get to my next question, I had another follow-up. And you kind of, and this is a fun question that I ask everybody. And you kind of went into it a little bit already in uh, how you got into microcaps. But like what, what, experience, what other experience can you look back on in your microcap investing career that you were like, okay, I remember uh, April thirtieth, twenty fifth, you know, just making up a fake date. <laughs> but like, okay, this I will always, I'll never forget this experience, and I'm carrying it with me to this day. Like, uh, do you have one in mind? Um, I think I, I actually think the first uh, the first time I, I sat down with my first CEO and and you know it, it was that first uh, company that I had initially bought and call, sort of called him up out of the blue and he was nice enough to talk to me and then uh, a couple months later I asked if I could you know come down and tour the uh, the premises and um, he sat with me for an hour and a half and we had an amazing conversation not just about uh, his company, but about the more about the space, and and he talked to me about the other members in the microcap club. So I thought that, I thought that was really nice that he took the time, you know, just to meet with me. I'm just a small little investor, you know, an individual investor. But I thought it was really cool that he 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 took that time to uh, to get to know me personally. Actually, from that anecdote, another thing we can draw from that is to not be scared to just give give them a call. You know. The, yeah. Yes. The, right. I mean. 
Yeah. I mean, you have to be, you have to be mindful that they're busy, right? Sure. And, and a lot of them, you know, do, do many different things. So oftentimes the CEO is also the IR person. And so I, I, I would highly encourage people to call, but you have to do your research first, because if you call and say, well, just tell me about your business, then he's not going to want anything to do with you. If you call and ask smart questions and have done a lot of due diligence before, then he'll have a lot of respect for you. So I think that's a kind of a key point too. For sure. Uh, so then uh, going off, off of that, you know, what uh, you've already probably somewhat answered this, like throughout this whole interview actually, but you know, to kind of bring it all together, you know, what, what advice would you give to new microcap investors? Yeah. So I, I would definitely encourage people to, uh, to join online communities and, and, you know, microcap club was the first one that I joined that was, uh, that gave me access to other people, like-minded investors, and uh, allowed me to to make great friends with other um, with other backgrounds, right? So the, that's kind of a key point too, is that, you know, I have a science and law background. We have a person in our group who, who's a portfolio manager and an engineer of a different type. Um, we have a small business owner in our group who also brings really great perspectives also, a uh, software designer, you know, so it's, it's such a varied group of people. There's one guy in the healthcare space. So it, it like more minds are better than one. So, um, you know, just go out and connect with people. I think it's, it's just a key thing. I just can't get, you know, emphasize enough. Um, I would encourage people to read widely. And and two of the books that I that I loved early on that dealt with qualitative uh, due diligence was uh, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Phil Fisher. And one other book that I read that I really loved, and it's very approachable, is, is called The Little Book That Builds Wealth by Pat Dorsey, mm-hmm. which talks about moats. And it, it, you know, I never thought about it in this way before. I was naturally drawn to those types of companies, but I, I didn't have a... a uh, uh, verbiage or, or uh, you know, categories to, to, to use. So I thought that was really useful. I would definitely listen to podcasts such as yours um, to, to, to get, you know, ideas about different investing styles and ideas, different ideas. Um, Google puts out an amazing video series with uh, famous investors like Chuck Acre, Tom Russo, which I just, I think are wonderful. And I, I sort of really suggest that people stay within their circle of confidence because, you know, some of the mistakes I made really early on were investing in mining and commodity stocks I had no knowledge of. And so I could really crash and burn in those. And I didn't even know why I was doing that. Is I guess being a Canadian, that's it's, it's really pushed on us. So I, I, I totally stay away from those stocks now. Um, and you have to be extremely patient and, and have a long time investment horizon because it sort of allows you to stick with winners and, and hopefully compound your capital um, and not get, you know, um, you know, not go with the, the flavor of the day. Um, and also just, I think the last thing I'd like to say is just, just remain flexible in your thinking because even Warren Buffett came out with his, uh, his annual general meeting and, and he's arguably one of the best investors. And he admitted that he, he missed investing in companies like Google very early on. And even he has revised his thinking to try and focus on these capital light, scalable compounding companies. And, and you know, he came right out and admitted it. Because investing is iterative, you know, and it's you're constantly looking for patterns and, um, you know, just stay flexible and light, I think. You know, just like our uh, our former uh, uh, guest on the on a couple previous pro- podcasts said, uh, uh, Jason Hirschman, he goes, you know, always question your investing thesis. 
you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think many people don't. And, 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 you know, it's, it's very hard to, once you've invested your time and energy and money and you've made the position, it's very hard to, to see flaws or to identify flaws or to admit flaws, but it's something you need to do. I, I totally agree with them because, you know, it, it'll give you a red flag and, and, you know, give you an idea that maybe you need to leave if it, mm-hmm. if your investment thesis changes. So it uh, as difficult as it is because you kind of fall in love with, you know, your positions, it's it's absolutely necessary. I was going to say, especially after all the work that you did and yeah. <laughs> that you just described, <laughs> that, that sounds incredibly but we're hard. Questioning the, yeah, we're always <laughs> questioning things <laughs> and, and following it, right? You can't just, you know, buy and forget, especially in the right, microcap world. You got to see what, what they're doing and, 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 and make sure you agree with it. Absolutely. So uh, to wrap up here, to, to follow you and to get your insights as to you know how you're looking at the microcap space. So where can my audience go and find that information? Yeah, so I, I use Twitter um, under, the lock st- under the handle at Lockstock Barrel with no E in Barrel because someone had already taken it when I looked. <laughs> By the way, you have to tell everybody the story of how you got to Lockstock and Barrel because it has nothing to do with the movie. Let's just, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so originally, I uh, my daughter did suggest Stalker Mom, which we thought was hilariously funny at the time, but it was taken. So um, I just uh, I just wanted something with uh, stock in the name, and uh, just thought of Lock, Stock, Barrel. And then when I looked up what the meaning was, it it was it had something to do with guns, which I thought was kind of cool, <laughs> and barrel and stuff. So I just thought it was kind of a unique <laughs> gun name. So. And I think that's why the people were extra shocked to learn I was a woman using such a <laughs> macho <laughs> handle. But, you know, you got to be bold in these. Uh, in, in this, you know, oh, I love it. Well, Meredith, th- thank you so much again for joining me on the podcast today. I'm, I'm so thankful that you joined me. And um, I look forward to meeting you in person one day soon. Definitely. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Meredith, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.